As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. When people are telling the truth, now this is not a thousand percent correlation, but it's a real high correlation. You get a lot more direct. Best ever listeners, before we jump into today's episode, for all my fix and flippers out there, are your financing costs eating away at your bottom line? And are you looking for a way to increase your overall profits by lowering your loan payments to the bank or maybe your private lender? Well, our best ever sponsor, Patch of Land, you know Patch of Land, they've been on the show, representatives of their company have been on the show many times, they've been a sponsor of this show many, many times, they're back for more because they love you and they love working with the best ever listeners and they've got an interesting point of view on interest rates and that is that it's... The interest rates that we are quoted shouldn't necessarily be taken at face value because perhaps a higher interest rate could actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan. And they have a white paper on how that is possible and how that can be applied to your fix and flip business to help your bottom line get more profitable and to help you choose the best uh, lender for your financing needs. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless and they've got a white paper for you and it will walk you through the way to evaluate interest rates in terms in general on your loan so that you truly are getting the best interest rate because there are some tricky things some lenders try to do to um, glaze over the fact that their lower interest rate, quote unquote, is actually higher based on some technical things that they put into it. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless and get that white paper so that you can save money on your fix and flip projects. Patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Chris Voss. How you doing, Chris? Fantastic, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Well, my pleasure. And nice to have you on. And I've got a daily podcast, so I interview a bunch of people. And I always ask, what's the best ever book you've read? And lately, I'd say about 20 to 25% have been mentioning your book. Wow. They love it. very cool. Yeah. Well, real estate investors love your book. The book is Never Split the Difference. It's a best-selling book. And certainly among the real estate community, 
It's a very popular one. I have bought it, and I didn't know I was interviewing you today because if I did, then I would have done some reading on it because it's still on my shelf. I got to read it. So I'm really excited to talk to you about it. So many people who we've interviewed have read it, and as a result, I bought it, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Chris is also the founder of the Black Swan Group, which is a firm that solves business communication problems. He has a background in hostage negotiating. He was a lead FBI hostage negotiator, and then he founded the Black Swan Group. So let's talk about, first, your background, and you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about background and what you're focused on? Yeah, sure. This is about applying hostage negotiation to business negotiations and your personal life, too, because how many times your family members take you hostage? I'm originally a small-town Midwestern guy, son of Richard Joyce Voss from Mount Pleasant, Iowa, it's a town of about 7,000 people. My father was an entrepreneur, so you know, I grew up in that environment, always thinking like an entrepreneur, I think, businessman. Came an FBI agent, worked counterterrorism, counter-kidnapping my whole career, and ended up being responsible for the negotiation strategies of every American kidnapped overseas for about seven years. So in trying to get better at that, I turned back to the business negotiating world, first Harvard Law School, to help us get better. And then when I went through the course at Harvard Law, they said, look, you're doing the same thing we're doing. You just got better stories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then while I went through that, I just used my hostage negotiation stuff on Harvard lawyers and did really well. Came out with the upper hand most of the time. So started <laughs> teaching in business schools when I left the bureau in 2007. I've been doing business negotiation, coaching, teaching, training ever since. Let's talk about the negotiation of a kidnapping overseas that you took the lead on. If an American was kidnapped overseas, you were taking the charge on that negotiating. What's your approach? And I know we can easily tie this into business too, but I just want to hear what your approach is in that situation. Well, yeah, it's pretty easy, really. Kidnappers are businessmen. The business they happen to be in is kidnapping, but they're commodities dealers. And they're like any hard bargaining negotiator that you will run across anywhere. So they're remarkably susceptible to deference, as are all people. You know, I like skills that work 360 degrees with everybody. Deference is one of those skills. And they want to be in charge. They're control freaks. Control freak negotiators are really easy to deal with because all you got to do is make them feel like they're in charge. And they drop their guard because they want to be in charge. Then we just called it empathy. Now I call it tactical empathy because we know how to get through people's reasoning and get at their emotional architecture, if you will, and get them to feel like they're in charge and get them to make deals. So we just used weaponized empathy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> On them, made them feel like they were in charge, make them feel like they were calling all the shots. And then the kidnapper will let a hostage go when they feel like they've gotten everything they can which is what everybody else in business will do. They'll make the deal when they feel like they've gotten everything they can. Now, there's a real distinction between whether or not they got everything they could and whether or not they felt like it. Mm -hmm. So my job was always making them feel like it. And we cut a deal that they'd stick to. That's the other important thing. You got to cut a deal that they'll stick to. And that also, if you run across them again in another environment there, they're happy to deal with you. So there's, you can't have bad blood. You can't lie. It'll catch up with you. You can't deceive. You can't hoodwink. Interestingly enough, you got to be real genuine. Let's just play this example out and then we'll switch into business. But I know you're overlapping the two, so it's great. But what is a deal that you can stick to that a kidnapper overseas 
would feel like they got everything they could? What do they receive? Well, international kidnapping is about ransom. So they're going to get a payment. Now, what you want to do is you got to run it like a sting operation. Basically, it's the same reason why banks have die packs. You give bank robbers money. So you get people out of harm's way so they'll leave the bank. But most importantly, so that you plan evidence on them. Now, there's a possibility that the bank robber is going to get away with the bank robbery money anyway. That's why you don't give them all the money in the vault. You just give them enough to make them happy so they'll go on their way so that ideally you can follow up afterwards and not only scoop them up, but scoop up everybody that they do business with illegally. But you have to run it as if it's going to take a while to catch them so you don't want to put too much money in their hands. So an international kidnapping is about tough as nails, bare knuckle bargaining without making the other side mad and without making them feel out of control. It's about tough bargaining in a really soft fashion. That's what it's really about. And then you cut a deal and then also you got to pay, then they got to comply. It would be like any business deal where you pay the other side all the money up front and then wait for them to comply. Hmm. So you have to know what somebody looks like when they're telling the truth. And you have to know the tiny little emotional, psychological edges that capture every single edge so that the kidnapper, once they've got the money, they got the choice as to whether or not the hostage go, whether or not they let the hostage go as per their agreement. So it's, it's cutting any deal where the other side's going to comply because they feel like they got everything they could. You pay them and they're going to let the person go as agreed to. What are you going to do? You're going to sue a hostage taker for not letting somebody go? No. So you got to make implementable deals that the other side's happy with, that they feel like they got the best deal they possibly could. With the tough bargaining in a soft fashion so that you don't make people mad, is that where the tactical empathy comes into play or are there other things to accomplish that? Yeah, different applications of it. Tactical empathy, is it primarily knowing what emotional triggers what make people feel good? It's learning how to say no without saying no. Like the book starts out with, in the first five pages, it was when I first went up to Harvard Law School. I sit down with the head of the program on negotiation, Bob Newkin, and I know what he's angling for because I can smell it. He wants to do a role play with me. He wants to see if I got any game. <laughs> so he says, if you negotiate with a kidnapper, what kind of strategies you use? So I give him an answer that makes me sound weak and innocuous. And I say, you know, we just ask him open-ended questions, that's all. And he goes, really? He kind of laughs. <laughs> he says, that's it. I say, yeah, we're going to ask him open-ended questions. Now, I got some ridiculously powerful open-ended questions. <laughs> but he doesn't know that because it sounds like something that's stupid and simple. And he's not impressed with it. Pretty much happens wherever I'm in a new environment. They go, you got to be kidding me. That would never work. Fine. So he literally calls a couple of people in to watch and he gets a tape recorder. So he looks at me and he says, all right, you know, boss, we got your kid. Give me a million dollars by tomorrow morning. We kill your son. I got your son. I'm going to kill your son. Give me a million dollars. And I look at him and I say, how am I supposed to do that? Just like that. And he kind of blinks a couple of times. And he goes, no, no, we got your kid. You don't understand. We got a million dollars. I'm going to kill you. Now, already I'm listening. He doesn't know it because his initial intention was to make a demand and get off the phone. Yeah. I've already extended the conversation. He feels in charge. The secret to gaining the upper hand in any negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control, which is the point of that question that I just asked. 
have triggered something that Daniel Kahneman calls deep thinking, which slows them down, doesn't make them feel threatened, but he doesn't know that I've already boxed them in. And then I say, how do I know my son's alive? How am I supposed to agree to pay you if I don't even know he's alive? How am I supposed to pay you if I don't know you're going to let him go? How do I know you're going to let him go? Just one after another after another. This goes on for a little while until finally one of the people watching says, don't let him do that to you. <laughs> and he looks at her and he says, will you try it? And she says, I got your kid, million dollars tomorrow morning. I say, how am I supposed to do that? We start over again. How am I supposed to do that is the number one way to say no in negotiations. You got to say it deferentially because what's said with deference, you'd be amazed what you can get away with saying. And the other side feels in control. They don't know you boxed them in. Hmm. Since we're real estate investors on the show, let's say we're talking about a deal and it's a house, it's worth $300,000 and the seller says, I want $400,000. And I say, well, how am I supposed to do that in a deferential, warm and fuzzy way? Then they'll say, well, you get your checkbook and you write out uh, $400,000. That's how you're supposed to do that. Oh, let's role play. Cool. You think you know what they're going to say? Let's role play. <laughs> All right. Who do you, which one do you want me to be? You'll be the seller. I'll be the seller. So the house is $400,000. All right. You know what? You've got an amazing house. You know, you put your hopes and dreams in that house. You get cherished memories there. Cherished memories of the past, your hopes and dreams of the future. It's a beautiful house. It's worth every penny of that. It's probably worth more than that. I'm really embarrassed because, but how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> well, you you write a check for $400,000 and that's the amount you pay. And it's worth it. I mean, it's a beautiful house, but how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> I would almost think you're a little loony because you keep repeating that you just write a, you write a check and... That's it. I mean, I don't know what, how are you planning on buying it in the first place if you weren't going to pay for it? Well, listen, how long do you want your house to stay on the market? Because no one can do that. I'd like to get it sold pretty quickly. Yeah. Do you want to fail? No, I don't want to fail. That's not an option. Your house is a fantastic house. And I know that and from your perspective, it's worth way more than what you're asking. But it's going to stay there. As long as you're asking that price, how long do you want it to stay there and not sell? Well, I'd like to sell it pretty quickly. That's for sure. And I also would like the price that makes sense for me, which is the 400. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, why me? Why, why, you know, I mean, you, you don't have to... You don't even have to be in this conversation because I've already let you know that I can't do that and you're still talking to me. So it sounds like you got some sense that nobody's going to pay you that. Well, I don't know. I guess it's just something that I'm looking for. And if it's not a right fit for us, then I guess it's not a right fit. Yeah. You know what? And, and you've been enormously generous with your time. That enormously generous. I'm surprised that you've talked to me for this long at all. And, you know, what I'd like to do with your permission, I'd like, I'd like to have your permission to come back to you and talk if nobody else comes along. Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds like a good next step.
Right. Okay. So a couple cool. things here. Yeah. First of all, you and your holodeck. You know what the holodeck is? I have no idea. Star Trek, the holodeck is the room where in our imagination we create whatever we want to have happen. So there's a little bit difference between a conversation that you're imagining what might happen that you're right. not in the middle of yeah, yeah, and one that you're actually in the middle of. So I didn't make this how am I supposed to do that stuff up on a first spur of the moment. Actually, what would have happened if how you would have answered if in fact that you weren't going to take anything other than 400 grand instead of slowing down and saying it as slowly and gently as you would have, you would have said, you know what, because if you want the house, you'll pay it. Now, that's an actual indicator when people are telling the truth. Now, this is not a thousand percent correlation, but it's a real high correlation. You get a lot more direct. It's a great way when somebody's testifying in front of Congress, when a congressional witness is being accused of nonsense that they haven't committed, they look at congressmen and say, because congressmen, because that's the way it is. As an FBI agent, I learned directness and impatience correlate strongly with truth telling. Mm. So you were role playing a role that you weren't feeling. And that's why you didn't say it that way. You said, well, you know, because. Yep. I buy that for sure. You, you know, you're a little slower. So you, you're a little out of character in a role. Yeah. But let's get back. What happens if the other side says what you said only more directly? That's your job as a negotiator, actually, to push you till you say, because if you want the house, you're going to pay $400,000. Because my job as a negotiator is not necessarily to make the deal. My job is to find out what the deal that's there that could be made and then decide if I want to make it, which in that case I didn't. But now the most important thing for me to do is the last impression is the lasting impression. Let's say that you're selling a house and the market says it's worth 300 and you want 400 and you're genuinely not going to budge off 400, which means your house ain't going to sell, which also means that eventually at some point in time, you got to be willing to go back to somebody. The last impression I left you with was nothing but with respect and deference. Mm -hmm. The last impression is the lasting impression. I actually intentionally seeded our next interaction by instead of using the last word to say like, look, pal, you're going to beg me to buy your house someday when you come to your senses. Yeah, right. Which is a mistake that a lot of people make in, in negotiations. When they know the other side's crazy, they make the worst possible impression at the end, which is like, all right, fine. You're going to be begging me to buy this someday. But instead of doing that, which is people say they're cheap shots for last, we actually call this the Oprah rule. Oprah's the toughest negotiator on the planet. Is that a reputation? No. I know someone who's worked as Oprah Winfrey's booker for 17 years and everybody that works with Oprah, their overwhelming goal is everyone they interact with has to feel, especially at the very end, like they were treated exceptionally well, no matter how it went. Mm. And the Oprah rule is the last impression is the last impression. It sets the seed for my next impression. Let's say you really are crazy. You're not coming off the 400 grand. I know that house ain't going to sell because the market is not for 400 grand, but I do know that I'm going to get another crack at it as long as I treat you with respect and deference and empathy throughout. You notice I used empathy every step oh, yeah. of the way before Absolutely. I said anything. Yeah, it was and, soaked in empathy. Yeah, and so what that does is it sets me up for the next interaction, which when I come back around, your memory is going to be like, yeah, you know, that guy wasn't that bad last time. You know, he didn't give me what I wanted, but he treated me really respectfully. I don't like where I'm at, but 
since I don't like where I'm at, the only people I'm going to deal with are the people that made the least bad impression on me last time around. Makes sense. The takeaways I've gotten from this so far to summarize is have empathy and just soak the conversation with empathy, but also do it in a genuine way versus you trying to apply it when it's not natural for you. Yeah, you know, and there wasn't anything that I said that wasn't utterly true. I know in the real estate industry, you're selling a house. Actually, a home seller has the exact same profile as the family member of a kidnap victim. And the real bread and butter of kidnap negotiations is how we handle the family members because we would have the family members deal with the bad guys. And what's a child represent to their parents? Their cherished memories of the past, their hopes and dreams for the future. What's a house represent to a seller? Cherished memories of the past, hopes and dreams of the future. It's the same psychological profile. And that's what I said when we were talking. Empathy in a form of utter respect for how you actually feel about this. Not agreeing with any of it, but just recognizing it. That really empathy, it's cognitive empathy. It's a recognition. It's not adopting it, but it's just recognizing what you feel. It's not sympathy. And I know what that profile looks like, or I can pick it up really fast in any given industry because whatever anybody does in in any sort of business, their hopes and dreams for the future are on the line at some point. All I got to do is listen for it and respect it. It gives me tremendous advantage. What's been the most challenging negotiating circumstance you've been in and how do you work through it? Well, the other side is negotiating in a fashion that it's just not going to work out for them. They're not going to get anything that they want. They're new to it. They're bad at it. There's a deal here and they're just not seeing how what they're doing is going to screw everything up for them. That rarely happens in kidnapping, but it happens sometimes. One of the cases I talk about in the book, interestingly enough, it turns out there's a business term for what happened in that negotiation. I've run across salespeople that called it being single-threaded, where your point of contact is out of touch with their team, and they're negotiating in a way that the deal's never going to happen, and they're going to lose their job over. Interestingly enough, since kidnapping is a business, that's exactly what happened to the negotiator we were dealing with in the Philippines on the second go-round, the Burnham Sabero kidnapping, and then ultimately hostages died in a botched rescue attempt about 13 months after the kidnapping happened. I ended up finding everything out about the kidnapping. The upside to a hostage negotiation is at the end of the day, you're going to find out everything that happened on the other side through the follow-on investigation. And I thought, what do I do? when the point of contact is out of touch with their own team. And we actually developed some more open-ended questions, which we now call calibrated questions, that are specifically designed to deal with what we call deal killers on the other side, people who won't come to the table because all they want to do is kill the deal once it's been made. There's no shortage. 50% of the business deals that don't go through don't go through because the deal killers on the other side stayed away from the table just so they could torpedo the deal when it came to them. And we mm-hmm. learned how to deal with that. What are some calibrator questions? Calibrated questions are a version of an open-ended question. And what it really is is I need you to think about implementation, which is going to be, how do I know the deal is going to go through? How do I know that if we make the payment under these terms that everybody on your side is going to do what they got to do? Now, what your point of contact will say is, It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. I represent everybody, which is why you repeat the questions 
three or four times because then it makes your point of contact nervous and they actually go back to their team and they say, hey, look, this is what they've been asking me. And I just want to make sure I'm on firm ground here. What will happen is then the deal killers love the fact that they're now being consulted, which is what they wanted all along. And now they'll start to become engaged and it decreases the chances that they're going to torpedo the deal. I'm noticing the word how come up frequently versus why or when. Is that intentionally? Yeah. Again, it's a good observation on your part. Very astute. The opening questions are who, what, when, where, how, and why, right? Yeah. Also referred to as interrogatives or the reporter's questions. Now, we pretty much cut them down to how and what's our bread and butter. We're real careful with why because... Why it makes people feel accused and defensive. You have to be extremely cautious with it. There's only one tiny limited surgical instance that it's why is a good question. Most of the time, instead of asking why, instead of like, why do you want that? You should say, what makes that a choice? Substitute what for why, and you'll eliminate the defensiveness. But they're very deferential. People love to be asked how. Mm-hmm. People love to be asked what. It's a great way to gain the upper hand in a negotiation by giving the other side the illusion of control. So those are the two biggest ones that give you the upper hand, but the other side feels in control. And with enough practice, you can turn nearly any question into a how or what question. The other side's going to love to answer it because people love to tell you how to do stuff. They love to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. And that's all part of the deference, giving them the illusion of control that gives you tactical advantages. Anything else that you want to mention as it relates to negotiating that we haven't discussed before we wrap up? Yeah, the flip side of opening questions are labels. And in many cases, they're probably about almost half the time, the best way to get somebody to talk is not with an opening question. And I mean, you need to switch it to a label because you'll open up more. And instead of saying, what do you think? I'll say, seems like you got something in mind. And actually, you'll give me a lot better answer to that second one than the first one just because it hits the brain in a different way. So mm-hmm. we use those and then we train on it, how to flip back and forth. Because you got to gather information doesn't necessarily mean the best way to gather information is by asking a question. Got it. Great stuff. How can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? All right. Our newsletter comes out once a week. It's called The Edge. It's free. It's complimentary. A friend of mine loves to say if it's free, I'll take three. <laughs> Careful what you take free three times. <laughs> there could be some <laughs> scary instances there. Right, right, right. It's worth at least looking at, right? <laughs> true, true. So send a text to 22828. The number again is 22828. Send the text FBI empathy, all one word. Don't let your spell check put a space in there. It's got to be FBI empathy, all one word. It's not case sensitive, so it can be lowercase. To 22828, you get a text message response back signs you up for the newsletter it's a gateway to everything we got our website is blackswanltd.com the newsletter will take you there tells you about training products we have if you want to buy the book which i strongly encourage amazon has the best price i buy my book on amazon yeah (laughs) but i give it away but subscribe to the newsletter it'll help you get better we'll help you learn a lot of stuff if i go to the website which i'm on right now where do i sign up for the newsletter on the website. There's kind of a menu bar towards the top. You should see yep. to the right of that. It says blog the edge. Yep. See it. Click on that. That'll take you right uh, in there. There we go. And you can search past stuff. 
got a search tool in there that can help you if there's a specific thing that you're looking for. Great stuff. Yep. I am officially signed up. Well, this has been informative and I'm grateful that you're on the show, Chris. As I mentioned at the beginning, I've had a large amount of people being interviewed. So high performing real estate investors mentioned your book recently and what compelled me to buy it. And coincidentally, my team booked you for the interview today too. So that was great. I had you on my list of people to reach out to anyway. So that's great. Some of the takeaways from this, as we can apply your lessons learned to real estate investing and negotiating in particular, ask open-ended questions in some circumstances. You mentioned at the very end, the labels part. I think we'll need to read the book to learn a little bit more about that. But what we talked about open-ended questions and using how and what, as you mentioned, are the bread and butter and people love that. They love to talk about the how and the what. Be careful with the why. Also be empathetic and use the Oprah rule of treating everyone exceptionally well at the end because that really sets the stage for the next interaction. And really one other thing we didn't talk about, but when we were doing the role playing back and forth, though your approach put me in a state. It was almost like you were putting a trance on me. And <laughs> it was it's the way that you talk and just the sound. You've got it down to a certain science, obviously. So that does something else that I know. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. Oh, and lastly, two things. One is, because I have this in bold, directness and impatience correlates to people telling the truth. That's really interesting. And then two is that you mentioned your job is not to make the deal and our job is not to make a deal. It is to find out what the deal that could be made is. And that's an important distinction because we're not always negotiating to get the deal done. We're negotiating to identify what is the deal that could be made. And I think that's an important distinction. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. Today's sponsor, Patch of Land, has got the document for you that you've got to check out if you're a fix and flipper. They show you how a higher interest rate can actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan. And conversely, how a lower interest rate could deliver a higher cost to your fix and flip loan. Needless to say, you got to know this stuff to identify the best loan terms. Go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Get this document, patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end-of-the-work-week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs. Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com.